In today's competitive e-commerce environment, it's never been more important to earn and maintain the trust of your customers. Merchant Fraud Journal's To Catch a Fraudster podcast is supported by SIFT, the leader in digital trust and safety. SIFT empowers companies to stop fraud and grow without risk. Visit SIFT.com assessment to schedule a consultation with SIFT's trust and safety architects. Industry experts who have decades of fraud fighting experience at companies like Facebook, Square, and Google. They'll help create a custom plan for your business with an emphasis on technology, organizational structure, and process. Visit sift.com slash assessment today. And we're live. Greg, thanks so much for being on the podcast with us. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Bradley. Yeah. So we'll start off where we always do. Tell me who you are, where you're from, who you're representing, and then we'll jump right into it. Yeah. So I'm, I'm Greg Edwards, and I'm the CEO of Crypto Stopper, and we have an anti-ransomware uh, deception technology tool that we built out of a managed services business that I own specifically to, to stop ransomware. And I'm, I'm based kind of in the middle of nowhere in Iowa. I live on a 60 acre farm uh, just north of Iowa City, Iowa. That's amazing. I've actually driven through Iowa, um, not, not uh, recently, but beautiful, beautiful place. So crypto, oh man. Where do we start with the crypto? Um, this is a new, one of the new subjects that we're tackling on the publication. Definitely something that's up and coming, something that people are really interested in hearing about, really a lot of uh, information that needs to kind of get out to the public. So before we jump in and talk about uh, your fraud stories, I definitely want maybe to give our audience from the horse's mouth why they should care about crypto fraud because in the payments industry usually we talk a lot about chargebacks that's the big thing and preventing chargebacks and then all the problems that come with preventing chargebacks but obviously crypto you're not in that world you're not dealing with banks that's largely the point of the thing and so i'm interested myself and also for our audience to hear why the fraud community should care about cryptocurrencies at all from a fraud perspective yeah well i mean i think first of all i i think over the next 10 years we're going to see crypto just continue i mean as as much as you've seen it already in the news i think you're going to see more and more about cryptocurrencies and the reason that people should care i mean it, it's not something that i would say if you're you, you know if if you wouldn't probably have to ever switch but I think within the next 25 years that cryptocurrency will be the, the primary way that most of the world deals with, with their finances. So I think it's something people should begin to learn. Um, from a fraud standpoint, I mean, right now it's cryptocurrency is the wild west. Um, so depending on how you're getting into crypto, um, if you there are so many opportunities to have your entire crypto wallet as they call it stolen um, so if it's something that you're just getting into you you definitely want to uh, do your research 
search. And, and there are plenty of reputable firms that can hold that crypto wallet for you so that you don't have that information directly and just on your own laptop or PC. Uh, so yeah, I mean, lots of, lots of reasons people should care about learning crypto or just stay completely away from it. One or the other. <laughs> <laughs> you already missed the boat. Bitcoin's already in the tens of thousands. <laughs> it's already done. You just take your ball and go home. Um, all right. So let's let's hear some let's hear some good stories. Let's hear. Let's, yeah. Let's hear so I, yeah. So the first story. This is uh, this is an accounting firm that was breached, and the the uh, fraudsters stole about just over forty thousand dollars from the US government, from the IRS, uh, through fraudulent tax re refunds. So the way that this happened, we actually were hired by this accounting firm to come in and shore up their cybersecurity. Well, the engineer that was on site doing the, the installation of our tools called me and said, hey, I think we have a problem. I think it's too late. And we we use a forensics tool uh, that it used to be used for forensic investigations. And now it's used prior to an incident so that you can detect fraud and detect a breach um, while it's in the process of happening rather than just after the fact. Well, in this accounting firm's particular case, um, as soon as our, our forensic tool was installed, we found that there were data files being transferred to uh, Santiago, Chile, which should not be happening from an accounting firm within the U.S. And it turned out that that this firm actually was being used. Not only had all of their clients' data been stolen and fraudulent tax returns filed and paid, uh, to a little to the tune of a little over forty thousand, um, but it was also being used as a beachhead to also steal information from other firms, put it there, and then transfer it all to Chile. Wow! All right, so so many questions off the bat here for merchants when they are creating these wallets let's start at the beginning because i think a lot of yep, merchants yep. don't even really know what that means when you're talking about creating a wallet somebody has to hold it. it take us through that process what that means who the players are what the risks are when you're selecting these types of people just anything in that landscape to to yeah. help merchants understand what they need to be doing yeah yeah so backing up to the cryptocurrency discussion um in selecting a wallet, there's there are so many different ways to do it, and I don't know that we have time in our, our podcast today to cover all of that, but you can, you literally can have a Bitcoin wallet that really is just a set of numbers. You can, I mean, that can, you can take it offline and have that just be a paper code really is what it comes down to. Um, or you can have it sit on a, a USB key or in an encrypted space on your laptop or desktop. There's all kinds of ways to save that information. What it comes down to is it's, it's essentially a, a password. It's just a long encryption code that is your key to your wallet. And that's what gives you access to it. And then you go in and transfer funds back and forth. Well, that's, that's the way that 
Bitcoin started out and the way you, you still can do, um, but much more common way is, is to go through through a company like Coinbase, where they manage that wallet for you. They manage all the encryption keys and then you just have a password and two factor authentication like you would with a bank to get into that Coinbase account and into that wallet. So and that's how my that's how my recommendation would do this as well. This so if I'm a if I'm a merchant out there, I can just open one of these wallets in the name of my business. So as a merchant, you actually would would sign up with a merchant account similar to the way that you would through uh, so I was talking from the consumer side. So from a merchant side, um, they would sign up through one of these services and do that the same way. And really the the key is to make sure that you're working with a reputable company. Um, because again, with crypto, I mean, it's such, such the wild west um, that you wanna verify how long have they been in business? Are there references that you can actually check on and and verify? Are there any red flags you could throw out off the top of your head? Um, so, I mean, red flags, it, it, it's going to be hard to discern from them, but certainly if there's any, any information that you can't verify, then that's going to be a red flag to me. So if they're promoting that, we work with these 10 different companies and you follow up and you find out that's not actually the case, then the thing is you need need to follow up and preferably find someone that you can talk to that's worked with that company and have a firsthand uh a firsthand reference so do your due diligence don't be lazy do your due diligence to, right. because again crypto is completely unregulated i mean there is zero regulation gotcha okay so now you're an accounting firm You've opened up this wallet, you're working with a provider or you're doing it on your own, however you're doing it. And now you find out you're, you're taking transactions from people. Now, take me, take me through, if you can, how these vulnerabilities are exploited. What are they and how are, how are these fraudsters getting at them? Are they stealing yeah. passwords? Are they hacking? Are they putting malware and getting your password? What 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 is the entry point, their vector to get in? Yeah. Yeah. So in this particular case, the vector came in through uh, remote connectivity. So you, uh, the work from home connection was compromised and actually the password was compromised and two factor authentication wasn't being used. And so that's how so they were essentially logging in as a user into the network, just like if they were a work from home individual. Okay. And, That's... and they knew, so these, these hackers knew the systems that were being used and had written their own programs to extract the data, encrypt the data again, and then exfiltrate it. So they knew, they knew very well, what kind of company they were attacking, what data they were looking for, and how to extract it. 
So when they're getting this information through the connection, were they pretending to be a customer at one point? And so they were asking for access to the screen share. How, how are they getting that point of entry? No. So the point of entry um, was they were connecting. They actually brute forced the password. So a brute force attack is when you try, um, you try the same password over and over and over. And this firm didn't have, number one, didn't have two-factor authentication set up for their remote connectivity. And number two, didn't have a brute force detection, which seems like and sounds like, how does that happen in today's world? But it happens all the time that companies just don't realize that how vulnerable they are. And so they don't, they don't think, oh, we would be a potential target. They don't recognize or realize that. Right. So they brute force the password. Once they get one, did they get the password to the wallet or they got into their system essentially? Got into their system. And then we're able to yep. take the password to right. the wallet. Okay. Right. Right. So now we're at the point they're in. And they're doing all this stuff. And lucky for this company, not only are they getting hacked and stolen from, but now the IRS is getting involved. <laughs> so <laughs> the there's so many issues here that I kind of want to cover from a, a liability perspective as well as a merchant and what you need to be thinking about when you're an unwilling or unknown uh, accomplice to defrauding the IRS, which I'm sure is a terrifying experience for an accounting firm and, and not a place that they want to be in. But before we get there, I'm really interested to hear kind of what that looks like on their end. Once, once they see that this is going on, what are the, what are the steps that, that you recommend that people take? What are they supposed to be doing here to mitigate the damage in the immediate term? And then what do they need to think about? I, not every company is gonna have to deal with tax fraud, but how do you start thinking about the issues that this type of a breach could cause for you moving down the line? Yeah, well, so I mean, there's so many, <laughs> so many things to to talk through there. Yeah, five um, minutes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> right, right. So, I mean, the first thing. So, in this in this particular case, um, and 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 sorry if I confuse these two stories. This was this they didn't have a crypto wallet in. Okay this case where the crypto wallet itself was stolen um, they hadn't made that luckily hadn't made that transition yet so this is just customer data that was being stolen and not an actual okay. crypto wallet being stolen but still forty thousand dollars worth of fraudulent tax returns yeah. that were sent and that these fraudsters took so that this in this particular case, the attackers had been in the system for almost nine months wow. and they didn't know it because how would they know it? Because they didn't have the systems in place to track any of what was coming in and out. Um, the attackers were logging in as a user. So it looked like it, everything that was happening was a user on the system. And again, they didn't have a way to track the exfiltration and see where the data was going. Um, so, I, I mean, the the number one thing 
that I think, and this is, again, this is companies that have, if they have definitely merchant accounts, if they are taking credit cards, if they're taking especially crypto, um, having what's called an EDR system. So it's an endpoint detection and response. And what that is, is that forensic investigation tool that you think of it like a, like a video surveillance recording system that's recording everything that's happening that the users on that system are doing. So it's recording all transactions. Every time you open a file, every internet connection that you make, if files are sent over the internet, it's recording all of that. And then the, the best systems use AI to then look for what's called an uh, um, indicator of compromise. And really it's looking for anomalous behavior that's not user generated. And so in the, these systems, uh, we've been using these systems since about 2014, um, but they're just now becoming popular and becoming something that normal, normal businesses could implement. And they're called, Either EDR or XDR is the new term that's being used for extended detection and response. And they're not inexpensive, but they're much less expensive than they were back in 2014 um, when we first started using them. So, I mean, looking at your cybersecurity holistically and putting in the right layers of defense are critical. And I think as part of that, as part of that security stack today, XDR or EDR has to be a part of that. Excellent. Uh, excellent thoughts there for everyone. So at this point, the IRS gets involved. That just sounds awful. <laughs> I don't really know what else to say there. Take me through what ended up happening here in terms of were they liable for what was going on? I assume the IRS wanted to make sure they weren't in on the deal and that this was actually a case that they had actually been hacked and they weren't just pretending that they'd been hacked when they were actually a party to the actual fraud. Just take us through some of what I'm sure was a lot of misery on the part of the merchant, what what consequences they had from this in terms of their reputation yeah. and liability. Yeah, well, and actually the IRS was probably the least, uh, what do I want to say? The, they, were, they were the easiest to deal with in this situation. And the reason being, because it was like, oh, we have another one. <laughs> I mean, they are dealing with wow. so many of these incidents that it wasn't any big deal for them. Um, in this particular case, the FBI got involved, um, but really even the FBI didn't do any, anything any more than record what happened. And they didn't, I, at the time I had offered to install, because when we caught it, these attackers were still actively coming in and using the system as a beachhead. And so I talked to the, the FBI agent about let's set up 
a honeypot system right. and track these guys down because it it certain like they wouldn't have sent the data to Chile and actually been there. You know, they they were perpetrating this from somewhere else in the world and using this data center in San Diego um, to just to pass the data to another place. So, I mean, both the IRS and the FBI were involved, but honestly didn't the F so the IRS just booked it as another one. And okay, we have to take the individuals that were dealt with in this and set up um, pen codes, which is much more common now, um, but forced pen codes on all of the people that were affected at the time, which is the way it should be anyway, um, and is becoming ubiquitous now. Um, but forced pen codes on all of those, and then the FBI essentially didn't, they, they were too busy to get involved and didn't want anything to do with it. And really what it came down to was reputation. And then the, and the emotional toll that it took on the business and on the business owner, as you can imagine, they thought they were hiring us to come in and get ahead of cybersecurity and take care of their problems. And we made their problems much worse to begin with, honestly. I mean, they, they would have, it would have come out eventually and we probably found it several months before, like it, it would have taken months and months more for the IRS and the FBI to track back where this was coming from. And so at least got ahead of it in that standpoint. Um, and only $40,000 was stolen in this case, it could have been much more. Right. Um, so that, I mean, to talk about that emotional toll as a business owner, if you can imagine, okay, all of your clients' data has been stolen. We're now, you're now going to have to go and talk to all of those people, provide fraud protection for them. I mean, it was devastating to this business owner and not, not something that people probably think they're ever going to have to deal with in their life to have data stolen, have that data being transferred to Chile, working with the FBI and the IRS to de determine what happened, then having the FBI and IRS basically both be like, yeah, this happens all the time. <laughs> Go on. And, and, but then still having to contact all their clients. And um, so in the state of Iowa, if there's a data breach that has over 500 records involved, then you have to notify the, the state of Iowa um, attorney general, you have, you're listed then on the attorney general's website as what happened. We call it the wall of shame. Um, wow. fortunately so there, or unfortunately, there, there's there any consequences to this, to them from a, like a so, business standpoint. No, um, there were not. And that is changing. So that's something where right now, I mean, in the, in the state of Iowa, even ran, there's no law against uh, even ransomware in the state of Iowa. And that's the case in most states. It's just the legislatures haven't kept up with the cybercrime that's out there. And so there were, there were no penalties directly to the business. Um, it did, it ended up costing about $120,000 just so, you know, there's some penalty there right, of in the notifications because you had to notify attorneys involved 
had to do more forensic investigation, um, had to hire a third party firm to do that third party investigation because we couldn't do it as even though we, they basically didn't have to do anything. We turned it all over to them, but uh, ended up costing about $120,000 in cost. But there weren't any fines on top of that. All right. So I want to make sure we get to the next story. Um, and you said this one's going to be more direct on point with, uh, yep. with, the, with the crypto. So I definitely want to hear, uh, definitely want to hear the next one. Yeah. So a ransomware attack and the way that it, that it feeds into crypto is that they, they wanted the ransom payment in Bitcoin. Um, and the the company that was that was attacked, um, this was this was a manufacturer again here in the state of Iowa that was hit by a ransomware attack that came in through email and encrypted all of their server data. And so, I mean, essentially, you can imagine um, you're at work one day and all of a sudden files that you normally would access off of the network, you go to open up and instead of the file opening, you get a text message that says, if, if you would like access to this file, please pay X number of Bitcoin to get the passcode to be able to unlock that file. And it locked every single file and the, and ransomware attacks are happening at a estimated at a frequency of every 11 seconds in the US today. Um, so, I mean, in this case, the ransomware completely went through all of the files, shut the business down. I mean, they were, they were able to recover from backup after a couple of days um, and worked with the, with the company to get through that and recover from it. Uh, and they ended up not paying the the crypto ransom, uh, but were were down for two days. So you can imagine a manufacturing firm being shut down because someone opened a malicious email. Right. So when you're dealing with these types of things with the payment that's going through crypto currencies, I've heard that it is possible after the fact to track down these payments that the FBI does have that ability. I know there was recently a really high profile case where somebody um, had stolen, I think we're talking hundreds of millions of dollars or, or some, some really 3.6 billion. If we're talking about okay. the same uh, and, incident and that the FBI was able to, and they won't say how or what or why, but they were able to track it. And I heard they used um, a, like a tumbler, I forget the exact terminology to try and cover their tracks and take us through some of that process. You know, what yeah. merchants might be able to do if they are hit with these attacks and they're just trying to make a decision. Should I pay this ransom? Should I not pay it? Can I get the money back through one of these things? Because I think that that's definitely something that people think about. And, and I assume that not everybody it's treated the same that the FBI isn't tracking down a, a $20,000 ransom payment the way that they're going after a $3 billion one. 
So just take us through that whole process. Yeah. So there's, I'm sure there's more, but there's only two cases that I'm aware of where the FBI actually tracked it back to the original attackers. Um, the case that we're talking about here was $3.6 billion of Bitcoin um, that actually was stolen, I believe in 2016 or 2017. Um, and it was 73 million at that point. And because of the increase in Bitcoin, it went from being worth 73 million to 3.6 billion in that amount of time. And, and the FBI was able to track that down. And so the thing about, about Bitcoin specifically and most cryptocurrencies is that these wallets that we're talking about, they're public information. They're as far as the account, like if you think of it in banking terms, the account number and the amount are public information. And that's what that's what's in a what's called a ledger that's part of the blockchain. And so those are are completely transparent. It's it's the identity behind that wallet that or that, you know, that ledger that is is anonymous. And so while the account number and the amount is publicly available, you don't know who that account belongs to. And so what the FBI has been able to do, and this is really much more through detective work, and I don't know all of the inner workings of it, but it essentially comes back to tracking down how is that account number, if you think, again, thinking of it in banking terms, how and where is that account number used, and then who is using it, and that's how they tie it together. And in the case of the, the $3.6 billion, um, it was their own, I'll call it stupidity, in identifying themselves from it. So they, I mean... I don't always steal three point six billion dollars, but when I do, well, again, it was only it was only seventy three million when they fine. first stole it. I mean, it. yeah, well, I, <laughs> only only if you anyone out there who has seventy three million in Bitcoin lying around, please feel free. I'm uh, I'll, I'll I'll set up a wallet just for that. Um, I yeah, think I actually yeah. do have a, an account on Coinbase. I think I bought like a hundred dollars worth of Ethereum two or three years ago, just because. I said, well, if this thing goes to 50,000 and I didn't put a hundred bucks on it now, I'm just going to feel like a schmuck. So I need to just like throw my hundred bucks on this just for the mental health protection kind of yeah, box. Yeah. You know, after you miss well, the Bitcoin thing, you're like, I don't want to miss the next thing too, that I'm just being lazy. So, right. So, well, so. so you should check it and see. It might be depending on when you bought. Um, it hasn't gone to 50,000, but I, I want to say maybe 3,800 the last that I checked. Okay. So I'll check it out. It I'll check it out. Might so, be worth uh, a few grand. So, I mean, I, so if I had 76 million, I think I read this, they were doing the Insta thing. They were flashing the money. And oh the yeah. Cars and the look at me. And it, you know, yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's how they were caught. Um, the other, so the other incident that I'm aware of was the, the perpetrators of the colonial pipeline attack. If you remember mm -hmm. that happening last summer, um, and this was an incident that 
shut down 45% of the oil and gas flow to the east coast of the U.S. So again, super high profile event. Um, the perpetrators of that attack were, they were users of this ransomware as a service. So if, and this whole nother discussion to talk about, but most of the ransomware that occurs today is through, you think of like software as a service. Well, these attackers are buying ransomware as a service from better hackers that put together these, these systems. And so the Colonial Pipeline attack actually happened from an affiliate of a group called R Evil that was this affiliate was using the ransomware as a service from our evil and the FBI was able to track back that affiliate. They didn't ever track back the our evil perpetrators, um, which actually have hackers. now supposedly shut down. Well, and they were the better hackers, so they knew how they to were the better hackers. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And so so yeah, I mean merchants should not expect if they're $20,000 is stolen that the FBI is number one going to care or number two have any clue of what to do about it. Right. Uh, yeah. I'd imagine it's a huge undertaking to do this kind of forensic work and dig through. And I did read in that article as well that these people, while hilariously flashing all this stuff on Instagram, did also do some of the things that people said would have been considered best practice to try and hide your tracks. And so people in the community, I'm not in the crypto community, but I read that people were actually pretty surprised even that the FBI was able to do this considering all the things that they had done to try and hide their hide their tracks. Um, right. And the, and the FBI hasn't been very forthcoming no, about exactly how they, how they track them back. But my assumption is um, it's much more, I mean, I, I'm sure there were some advanced detection methods of trying to figure out where those transactions took place. But I'm, I'm assuming that this was much more good investigative detective work as mm -hmm. opposed to, being able to literally track the the wallet because right. you mentioned um, you mentioned tumblers and essentially what a tumbler is is it's other kinds of cryptocurrencies so you think you start out with with bitcoin and a what a tumbler does is it takes and transfers that into other cryptocurrencies and then back out the other side and then it's then it's in a totally different wallet and and the surprise in the community was in well how did they ever track that all back and again the fbi hasn't been forthcoming and they may have some techniques to be able to track that all the way through but my assumption again is that it's good detective work as opposed to actually being able to track those transactions back through gotcha. so so to to bring uh bring everything to a kind of a closing note here if you're a merchant it seems like there are a couple issues here one you need to be thinking about your own wallet and how you're protecting your own uh 
keychain or your own password for this. Um, and the other is worrying about your customers that are paying through this. So I wanna, I wanna hear some of the best practices and things that people should be thinking about on both ends, both for their receiving end and when they're seeing people that are paying with Bitcoin or, or any of the other cryptocurrencies, what they should be thinking about, not only just in terms of protecting their own interests, but protecting their customers as well. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, the number one thing is using two-factor authentication. So going beyond, if we'd been having this discussion three or four years ago, it would have been make sure you're using a secure password that's not used in multiple places. I mean, that is still still something people want to make sure they're using a good password that's not used the same password over and over. So that would be number one. Number two, using two-factor authentication. So utilizing your phone to make sure that there's that second authentication method that's not just the password. That I mean, the, those are the the two things um, besides protecting your your whatever your laptop or your desktop and making sure that it isn't getting compromised. Um, but that's where, again, that's where the two-factor authentication will save you in that case most of the time. Right. And when you're accepting these payments, is there any kind of best practice around verifying that people are who they say they are in some sense? One of the things we talk about a lot in the fraud community is your business reputation and Again, we usually come at this from a chargeback kind of perspective, but the way that the community has been seeing the industry go is much more in the direction of customer experience and also brand reputation. So we always tell people, if you're accepting these payments and then you find out that this was an Iranian terror organization or a Colombian drug lord or whatever other kind of entity that is going to be up to no good that reputational risk is real and if it hits the wire that you were even if it was obviously inadvertent that you were in this conversation it's not it's not a good look for your business so is there anything that merchants can do if they're accepting crypto to try and mitigate this risk of of the anonymity of the payment system or is, is it just, it is what it is? Yeah. So unfortunately it's, it kind of is what it is right now. Um, and, and I would say to that end, I think that the best course of action is transparency because you, you're, you're not going to know necessarily who you're taking payments from. I mean, unless you're vetting every single purchaser and that's almost certainly not going to be the, the case. So if it's found that you are selling to, um, and there are there are countries in the U.S. I mean, Iran is one that, as a U.S. merchant, you can't sell to. Um, but how would you know? And as long as it's not shipping to Iran, whatever the product is, or if it's even shipping, um, then you know you're not going to know. But when you when and if you find out, then being transparent about it and showing 
the you know what happened and not trying to hide it i think is the best course of action so keeping good records as well about absolutely the transactions that you're having with crypto all right. Well, Greg, this has been really, really insightful. I really appreciate it. Hopefully we can have you back. I'd love to hear more about uh, the cryptocurrency world. It's definitely upon us and growing. And I know it's a huge topic for merchants as more and more people look to, to pay that way. And keeping the customer friction low means offering the payment methods that people are looking to use. So I know that this is definitely only going to continue to grow. So to finish off, we'll just say again, where people can find you on the web um, and then we'll uh, sign off. Yeah. So people can find me um, at getcryptostopper.com um, or searching Greg Edwards and Cryptostopper. You'll be able to find me on LinkedIn. All right. Sounds great. Thanks so much, Greg. Really appreciate your time. Absolutely. Thanks for having me.